Well, friends, our text this morning is in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, and uh, we are going to read that portion out loud, and I would ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word uh, if you're able to do so. Mark chapter 2, and the verses that we're going to read are verses 18 through 22. I'm going to read it aloud, then I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and we'll respond together, thanks be to God. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Friends, biblical Christianity, and by that I mean true Christianity, as it is described and laid out by the living God Himself in the Scriptures. Christianity is not a system of self-improvement through religion, but it is rather a life of grateful personal dependence upon Jesus Christ Himself. What we have come together to do today as Christians is not to celebrate our collective system of self-help and self-improvement that we have discovered in the Christian faith. But it is rather to recognize again that there is a living God. Jesus Christ is His name. And He walked the earth, lived a sinless life, and died a sinner's death on the cross in our place. He rose from the dead and He lives even now. And all who trust in Him will be saved. Last week, we began considering this passage. Uh, We looked at the first three verses of the section that I just read to you, and uh, because I was not feeling well, we decided to not go further than that. Well, we decided, I decided to not go further than that, and yet still managed to somehow uh, preach for uh, more than enough time. Uh, We're returning to this passage this morning uh, to consider the rest of it. Now, uh, in part, because... We started last week and we're finishing this week. I do not have a particularly tidy outline for you. We're going to try to do the, uh, the, the most basic and simple thing when we come to the Scriptures, which is to consider what the Scriptures say and then consider how it applies to us. Again, <clears throat> we're in this section that we've been studying for several months now, and it is a series of controversies in Mark chapter 2. The Lord Jesus is interacting with Pharisees, scribes, with the crowds, and there's some controversy that surrounds these interactions. Um, This is the third of five sort of episodes of controversy, and the pattern every time is Jesus does something revolutionary, 
he is criticized for it, and then he responds in a way that silences his critics. This time, uh, the subject that this pattern is, uh, is taking place in is in, rela- in relation to is the subject of fasting. Jesus' disciples did not fast as the disciples of the Pharisees did. They had this, this practice of abstaining from food and drink for certain periods of time twice a week. And they were teaching their disciples to do that, and Jesus' disciples did not do that, and they wanted to know why. Now, Jesus responds to them, as we saw last week, in a series, three of metaphors, illustrations, sort of miniature parables. And he answers them on kind of two levels. Why don't your disciples fast? He gives two responses. First, he responds on the surface by telling them, essentially, this isn't the right time to fast. Can the wedding guests fast once the wedding party has started? Once the bridegroom is there with them? Once the feasting has begun, can they fast? No. Referring to himself and his disciples as those guests, he himself is the the bridegroom of God's people. God himself come to walk on the earth in their midst, the Christ. And once he's there walking in their midst, it's not the right time to fast and to mourn. There will come the time when he goes to the cross and they will fast, but not this day. That's the the short answer, the surface answer to why his disciples don't fast. But there is more to it than that. That is sufficient to answer their question, why his disciples aren't fasting as they do, but he goes on. There's a deeper issue here, a greater misunderstanding than just misinterpreting the times. And this one relates, this misunderstanding relates to the very heart of the gospel in the Christian life. Those Pharisees and scribes, religious leaders of the day, they were expecting Jesus' disciples to fast like they did because they had failed to understand the real gravity of the gospel that he was preaching and the implications of his presence there in their midst preaching it. He had not come just to bring some reform to their religion or to correct their excesses or to put a a fresh spin on things. He had come, in fact, to bring a whole new life to them and to everyone who will listen. A whole new way of thinking about themselves and understanding who they are and understanding who God is. A whole new way of relating to their maker. That's what Christ had come to bring them, a whole new life. Now, we'll look at the text here. Starting with verse 21, he gives two metaphors that illustrate this answer that he's giving them. And the two metaphors have the same principle that they are illustrating. First, in verse 21, there's that illustration of a, of a patch on a garment. The day will come, oh, I'm sorry, 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Now, this illustration with a patch on a garment, uh, it is not as common in our experience, maybe as it was in the ancient world, or maybe even a hundred years ago, that we would be mending our own clothes. Much more common today, we throw our clothes away or give them away and go buy something new. But it's not a difficult illustration to understand. It's not hard to get our head around what he's saying. The, The fabric 
the, the clothing was made, the garments were made of fabric in the ancient world that was not all that dissimilar from some of the fabric that we use today. And we do have kind of, you know, wild poly, neopropylene, some, you know, we have, we have all kinds of, of, of exercise gear and clothes that are made of thing, you know, crazy synthetic fabrics. But some of us still wear cotton underwear, you know, things like that. And some of those garments, when you wash them, they shrink. And if you wash them over and over again, depending on how you wash them, they, they continue to shrink, right? The, the, the structure of the fabric changes. And it was the same way in the ancient world. And because of that, a, a new piece of fabric that had not been washed and shrunk could not be stitched onto an old garment that had a hole in it or a tear and needed to be repaired for obvious reasons. He says it here. If you, if you stitch that new piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment over a tear, then you wash it, and the new piece of cloth, that's the patch, it will shrink, it will tear away from the old garment, and it'll make the hole even worse than it was when you started doing the repair job. Now, the second illustration he uses is very similar. It's using different components, but it's illustrating the same thing. Verse 22. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, this illustration, this scenario is likewise not all that familiar to us personally necessarily, but it's not hard to understand. The process of making wine in the ancient world was, was not all that different uh, from the processes that are involved today. There's a, a fermentation that has to happen with grape juice, and in order for it to become wine, uh, and that process of fermentation builds pressure. There's an expanding that happens. Uh, there's an expanding in, in wine bottles. That's why if you're to open up a bottle, you know, you get that pop sound because there's a pressure in there that comes along with the fermentation process. Well, in the ancient world, they did not have bottles, of course, like ours. Uh, and for the most part, when dealing with wine, they were using animal skins, uh, wine skins, to contain their wine. And as those skins aged, they became harder, more brittle, less supple, less flexible. Now, some of you may have had that same experience with a leather belt or with a leather jacket or shoes or something like that. When you first get them, it's very soft, very flexible. But as the years go by, uh, the, the, the leather itself takes on a different sort of quality about it. You know, it gets a little bit stiffer. It was the same with wineskins. Now, understandably, you needed to use new, fresh wineskins when you were putting, when you were dealing with new wine, because the wineskin had to have that flexibility that would accommodate the pressure building. An old, crusty, inflexible wineskin filled with new wine would very rapidly burst. The seams would break open because it couldn't flex with the, with the building pressure, and the wine would pour out, and it'd all be ruined. Right? That's the point. Again, not something that we may have seen firsthand, but it's not hard for us to imagine it. Well, what is Jesus' point in this? What, is the, what principle do these two scenarios illustrate? Well, it's pretty plain. The old is not compatible with the new. And the new cannot be mixed with the old. 
The new and the old don't fit together. New patches and old garments, new wine and old wineskins, they simply don't work when you put them together. The old and the new just cannot be mixed. Now remember, Jesus is not just giving them helpful domestic advice about mending clothes and making wine. The principle he's illustrating here, he's doing so in response to their question about fasting. This principle, the new and the old not mixing together, it's part of his answer to them. This is why he doesn't have his disciples follow their system of fasting. He and the gospel he is preaching are like new wine. And their system of fasting is like an old wineskin. And they simply do not work together. They do not mix. To attempt to impose the Pharisees' system of fasting on his disciples, on those who have come to know Jesus Christ and believe the gospel he is preaching, would be like putting new wine into old wineskins, like putting a new patch onto an old garment. Now, to really understand this, friends, we've got to remember what exactly the Pharisees were doing with their fasting and why they were doing it. I mentioned this last week, but you remember the Old Testament actually prescribes only one day of fasting annually. In Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, there's there's one day God calls His people to fast. But the Pharisees and the scribes had expanded that one day of fasting. The logic probably went something like this. You know, if if a day of fasting is good, well, once a year, then a day of fasting once a month is even better. If a day of fasting once a month is good, well, maybe a day of fasting once a week is even better. If a day of fasting once a week is good, well, shoot, twice a week is even better. For some reason, logic like that, they had come to the place where Jesus is describing them in Luke chapter 18 as those who fast twice a week. And not only do they fast twice a week, but this is a matter of pride for them. You remember in Luke 18 when Jesus tells that, that parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector? The Pharisee stands up and his fasting twice a week, he mentions as an indication of his righteousness and his piety. God, I thank you that I'm not like that sinner over there. I fast twice a week. It's a proof of his superiority that he fasts as much as he does. And not only that, but the Scriptures are clear, the Pharisees made a big show of it. Again, I mentioned this last week, but in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus says to his disciples, when you fast, don't fast like the hypocrites, they twist their faces up and they broadcast to everybody how miserable they are. Because they're fasting, making a big show of it, they're using this fasting as a tool to make themselves superior in the eyes of the people around them, and their hope is in the eyes of God, that God would look on their diligent piety, and he would reward them for it. That's how the Pharisees were understanding this fasting, how how they were engaged in it. Now, in contrast to that, remember the gospel that Jesus had come preaching here. Jesus had come preaching a gospel, good news, that was not a method of religion by which people could improve themselves and earn God's approval. He was rather preaching a gospel where he was calling admittedly unworthy sinners to himself. 
to come to him and to receive forgiveness and justification from him personally. Not to earn it by a system of works, but to receive it as a gift. And this is what the cross is all about, friends. The cross is not about a great example of sacrifice for people to follow and justify themselves. The cross is about Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, accomplishing our salvation by dying our death and our place on the cross so that all who come to him might trust in him and receive that salvation as a gift. I mean, this is what he's illustrating in Luke chapter 15, that very well-known parable with the prodigal son. Remember that? There's the fellow that leaves his father and goes to a far country and squanders all of his living. And, and, he, and when, he's, when he's in a disastrous place of need, he comes back home seeking mercy from his father. And the father receives him and restores him gladly. But there is an elder brother there who has been working, working, working hard to earn his father's approval. And he's resentful that this younger son has received his father's favor as a gift. Jesus' point is that the father is willing to embrace sinners. In fact, it's the father's desire to embrace sinners, not to have them prove themselves worthy of his embrace, but to come to him and seek his embrace and mercy, to seek his forgiveness. The cross is the greatest proof of that. And the father runs down off the porch to collect his son in his arms. Well, the father, as it were, sends his own true son from heaven to come down to embrace sinners. That's the gospel that Jesus was preaching. He was preaching a salvation and acceptance with God that is not earned by religion, but is rather given freely in mercy as a gift of grace. Jesus was preaching a way of reconciliation with God that was not about making oneself better through religious activity, but rather it was about knowing God personally by His grace alone. And that gospel, this is the point that I'm getting to, that gospel, that new way of fellowship with God through faith in Christ alone, receiving it as an undeserved gift, that was like new wine. And their old way of understanding religion, understanding their fasting and their works before God as a means of self-improvement, that was like an old wineskin. And they could not put the new wine of the gospel into those old wineskins. They simply would not go together. They were incompatible with each other. Now, at the risk of being redundant here, I, I want to clarify because this is, a, this is a subtle point to make. I want to make sure that we're understanding. The old wineskin that Jesus is referring to here is not the practice of fasting necessarily. You remember Jesus himself fasted. Jesus taught his disciples to fast. Jesus' disciples, after the, his ascension into heaven, continued fasting. Remember at the missions conference, our brother preached from Acts chapter 13. They were fasting then. And it was righteous that they were fasting. The old wineskin is how they were fasting and why. They were fasting as a part of a religion where they were trying to make themselves superior through these works and therefore secure God's favor by doing those works. The old wineskin was their whole 
way of thinking of religion as a means of self-improvement and earning God's favor. And remember, friends, they thought of all obedience to God's commands this way. It wasn't just fasting. It was the way they thought about prayer. It was the way they thought about the dietary laws, the way they thought about their charitable giving. They saw it all as a way of making themselves more religious, more righteous, better, and therefore more worthy of God's favor, more deserving of His grace, as if grace could ever be a thing that was deserved. It was a system of justification by works. This is what the Pharisees were practicing, and it was what they were teaching to people, a way of religion by which they could improve themselves and save themselves. And that old wineskin, it doesn't accommodate the new wine of the real gospel. That's an old garment. You can't stitch Jesus and the gospel he's preaching onto. It doesn't work like that. You've got to actually throw all that out and start over again. That's what they weren't understanding. That's the deeper answer to their question. Why are your disciples not fasting the way our disciples are? Because my disciples are understanding that this is new wine that's coming. It doesn't fit into those wineskins. Now, how does this apply to us as a church? Well, obviously, I, th I think it's safe to say we are not in danger of falling into a pattern of fasting twice a week the way the Pharisees were. That is not a strong temptation that I recognize in the lives of many people in this church. We are, however, in danger of falling into the temptation of misunderstanding Christianity as merely a method of self-improvement, aren't we? Understanding the gospel as part of a system of self-help, a system of behavior, a way of life that makes us able to become better people by our own works, the sort of people that God approves of and blesses. Friends, that way of thinking is absolutely opposed to the actual gospel that Jesus Christ preached. But that misunderstanding about the very nature of Christianity is all over the place. In fact, that might be the prevailing understanding of what Christianity is in the world today. If you were to take a poll of all the people that live within 10 miles of this church and ask them, what Christianity is all about, and they were to explain it, you, I'm, I'm guessing you're probably going to hear more often than not that it is some system of self-help and self-improvement. I mean, friends, if you went to Barnes & Noble this morning and you were to look for, Christ, for books on Christian living, you would find them in the self-help section. That's where they go there. That's where, they are, that's where they're, they're organized Christianity is not self-help. It's the opposite of self-help. It's being rescued by somebody else. But the misunderstanding is so deep and so profound in our culture that that's where the books are all organized, when you go to the bookstore. I mean, friends, is it possible that literally no one in the decision-making hierarchy at the Barnes & Noble company has an accurate understanding of what Christianity is so that they would not put those books in the self-help section? I mean, evidently. But I don't think it's just in the world that Christianity is misunderstood this way, that the gospel is misunderstood this way, thought of as a means of self-improvement. It is very much in the church as well that we sometimes find this misunderstanding. The idea that we are a people who have adopted a way of life that makes us superior to others and more palatable to God. 
that is unfortunately very common in the church. I mean, that's the way the world judges us sometimes, isn't it? Those who think of themselves as superior. Even though that is, that is so opposed to the gospel reality that I have recognized that I am grossly inferior and need to trust in Christ to be saved. But there's a reason that the world thinks of the church that way. It's because, unfortunately, there are churches full of people who are thinking that their religious works in Christ's name are making them superior. And they act that way. Friends, there, it, it is not uncommon for me to meet people in the community who when I ask them if they would, would come to gather with us on a Sunday morning, they, they respond with something like this. They'll say, you know, I might just do that. I do need to get back into church. Things have been harder than I expected them to be. Parenting is harder than I thought it would be. My marriage is harder than I thought it would be. And I could probably use some church in my life. I could probably use some Jesus in my life. As if he were like a booster shot. You know, as if he were a patch you can just stitch onto an old garment. That is the way that people are thinking. This is a tool to use to improve ourselves, the way the Pharisees were thinking. Now, friends, if you've come here this morning and you're thinking that way, I mean, maybe even if I invited you and you come in and you're thinking that way, I'm not saying you've come for the wrong reason, get out of here. What I'm saying is there is so much more to it than that. Jesus Christ, he is a source of help for people in need. Oh, but friends, he is more than that. He is more than a patch to be stitched on to a broken life. He is more than a, a pick-me-up, an injection of new wine and an old wineskin. He is something altogether new. And believing in him and knowing him demands a whole new way of thinking and a whole new way of living. And it is not a way of justifying ourselves by our works, even our religious works. It is a way of trusting in him and him alone. Friends, if we're honest, I think it's hard even in this church, in Grace Church in Roanoke, Virginia, not to fall into the same temptation and start trying to put that new wine of life with Christ into the old wineskin of self-improvement by our own efforts. Now again, we don't fast all that much, but we can do the same thing with our praying, can't we? We can fall into the same snare with prayer. Prayer can become to us something that we do to be better people, to be better Christians, to be praying Christians so that we can feel more acceptable to God rather than what prayer really is, which is simply the enjoyment of union with our God who has saved us by his grace. We can do the very same thing with our Bible reading. Bible reading becomes a matter of box checking. It becomes a matter of, of, of doing the task so I don't feel bad about not having done it. Maybe even expanding my knowledge of Christian doctrine so that I can feel more acceptable to God rather than learning about this Lord who has loved me and saved me. Friends, even coming together on Sunday morning like this to worship, we can fall into the trap of, of adopting old wineskins. We can think that we've come here together to do something that will make us more acceptable to God. Rather than to respond to the God 
who has loved us in our unacceptability and justified us. You see how subtle this, this old wineskin way of thinking can be. Our fellowship with the saints, we can sometimes think about our time with other Christian people as putting in our time rather than honoring our Lord by worshiping with our brothers and sisters. Even our service in His name. Our charitable giving or our, our deeds of love and mercy for one another, they can become about turning myself into someone that I find more acceptable, and surely God will too, rather than works done in faith. Friends, we've got to throw all of that out. Again and again and again, we've got to throw it out. The new wine of the gospel and fellowship with Christ is for new wineskins, fresh wineskins. We've got to remember that Jesus was preaching a gospel of righteousness, not as a reward of religion, but as a gift of grace. The Pharisees were practicing a religion and Jesus came preaching this relationship with himself. And the two were incompatible. We will have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ in his name by his sacrifice. Not by our own meritorious works. Even works done in his name. So friends, I encourage you to examine yourself here. Examine the way that you are thinking about the life that you live before Christ? Have you begun to think of it as a system for self-help and self-improvement? Have you begun to think of it as a way to, to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make yourself a better person? That is the antithesis of the gospel. I, I do think that we see in this text there is a, a quick test to use to examine our hearts the presence of judgmentalism in us will indicate sometimes that we've still got old wineskins we're clinging to. You'll notice in verse 18, the Pharisees, the people come and they ask, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? The implication is clear. How come you guys don't do what we're doing? How come we do this righteous work and you don't do it? What's the matter with you? It's a clear indication that they've begun to think of themselves as superior because of the things that they were doing and looking down on those who were not doing them. Friends, watch your heart for those kind of things. Watch your heart that your works of prayer and of studying God's word and worship and fellowship with his people and service do not become a pile of your own deeds that you stand up on top of and look down your nose at other people. We've got to watch out for that. That is the work of, of turning these things back into these old wineskins. Works of self-justification. We've got to watch. Here this afternoon, friends, we're going to have this, this training uh, for everybody who's going to be involved in child care at the church over the next year. And I hope that everybody is there. I would like everybody in the church to be involved in, in service and ministry to children in this church. But, oh, friends... We better not look down our noses at people who aren't there and judge them as inferior spiritually because we're there and they're not. I mean, that is evidence that we've begun to clamber up on our works and look down on people through it. We're going to have a prayer meeting to tomorrow night in the fellowship hall. Man, I hope that everybody comes to the prayer meeting. 
Would that every single person came to that 7 p.m. prayer meeting tomorrow night. But oh, friends, whoever's there better not look down their nose at people who aren't there. Better not start believing that because they are there, the works that they have done spiritually have made them superior to their brothers and sisters and they're in a place of judgment towards them. That's old. The new life and justification in Christ alone doesn't fit into wineskins like that. There simply isn't room for it. The two are not compatible. You see what I'm saying? So examine your heart here. And friends, where you see that old way of thinking, that old way of judging by works and improving self through religion, throw all that out. When you go to pray, I'll pray so as to know Jesus Christ and not to make yourself somebody prayerful. When you go to read the Scriptures, read the Scriptures to know God, not to make yourself somebody who knows the Bible so well. When you come here to worship on Sunday morning, oh, friends, worship to please the Lord who has saved you, not to make yourself somebody that He'll find worthy of saving. When you serve the people around you in the church and in the community, serve them in gratitude to Christ for what he has done, not to earn his favor. Live not in the way of the old way of self-justification, but in the new way of trust in Christ and Christ alone. New wine is for fresh wineskins. This, this is a basic truth, a fundamental truth that he's illustrating with these parables here. But oh, friends, we've got to go back again and again and remember it again and again. It is so easy to fall back into those old ways, isn't it? We've got to remember what he's done. Remember who he is in the gospel he preached and walk in the light of it. And the good news is you don't have to earn any of that, right? He waits for you. He waits for you to come. He waits for you to return. He waits for us even this morning to come to him in faith. He has not changed. So let's, let's pray together now and then we'll sing. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for sending Jesus Christ to preach the truth to us so that we might know life with you in him. Oh, Father, help us to know life with you in him. Help us to not twist discipleship. Help us to not twist the gospel. Help us to not mix these things with our old ways of thinking and the world's ways of thinking and dead religion. Help us, rather, to have fresh wineskins for new wine and to remember the truth of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.